Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. Today's episode is all about one of the greatest TV shows in the history of the medium, Justified. The original series aired from 2010 to 2015. Now it's back on FX and Hulu as Justified City Primeval. My guest is writer, producer, and director Michael Dinner, who was a key creative force on the original Justified and is a co-showrunner and writer on the new iteration. He also directed three of the season's eight episodes and supervised the others as producing director. Dinner is one of my favorite directors of all time, so I was thrilled to talk with him about how he brought Justified back and why it was merged with the source material of City Primeval, an Elmore Leonard novel not connected to the Justified universe. As always, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. You know, I found it really interesting that one of the sources, I guess the primary source for the season of Justified was a non-Raylan Givens Elmore Leonard novel, City Primeval. And I remember reading that book maybe 20, maybe even 25 years ago. And even at that point, it was already known as a book that a lot of filmmakers had tried to adapt or wanted to adapt, and they just couldn't get it going for one reason or another. So what was your own history with the book and how did it end up getting absorbed into Justified? Well, look, we had seven years of Justified um, and certainly familiar with a lot of Elmore's work, not just the uh, the material that we did for Justified, but, you know, all of his books. And um, it's a book that we're familiar with. It's kind of a crown jewel of his work. It was, his, I think, his first Detroit crime novel. Uh, you know, Elmore started writing Westerns and then he kind of segued into American crime fiction. So I was pretty familiar with it. We finished Justified. Uh, you know, some years later, I got a call from the estate, from Elmore's estate, from his son. And he said, are you familiar with City Primeval? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, would you have an interest in, you know, turning it into a show? And I said, yeah. So, you know, that kind of began the discussion. And, you know, as you said, it had kind of a storied past. I mean, at one time, Sam Peckinpah was going to make it. In fact, I think Elmore wrote the script to it. Didn't happen. Uh, Tarantino was going to make it at one time. A lot of people were kind of circling the material, and um, it had never been made. And so my intention really was to develop it as its own show. And I was working on that. I was I was working on the pitch and working on pages, and I was actually shooting something in Rome, and I got a phone call one day from uh, Tim Oliphant. He must have heard that I was doing something with the material. He said, um, are you familiar with this, uh, you know, with this book, City Primeval? I said, yeah, I'm very familiar. He said, well, you know, I'm on, I've been on the set, you know, and Quentin and I were talking, and we were saying it'd make a great year of Justified. I said, well, you know, that's a that's an interesting idea, Tim. I'll be back from Rome, but don't do anything. I'll be back in about a week. We can talk about it. Well, you know, he did a lot over the course of a week. You know, as it as it stood, you know, it 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 uh, it was a tough one because the rights were kind of spread out. So it, for about a year, looked like it wasn't going to go forward. I had a relationship with FF, with FX. I was about to go into a new relationship. They said, you know, what are you thinking about doing? And I said, well, you know, I've been working on, you know, pages and a pitch for, I said, are you familiar with City Primeval? They said, oh, yeah, you know, because Tim pitched it to us a year ago. And uh, I said, well, let me pitch it to you as its own thing. And you tell me, do you want to do it as its own thing or do you want to do it as a year justified? And uh, if you don't want to do it as either, then, you know, I, I can't do it because I'll be exclusive to you. I pitched it to him. They said, yeah, we love this, but we'd like to do it as a year justified. It took about a year to to work out the right situation, and, and then we finally did. And so what's the process for you as a writer figuring out how to merge those two things, merge City Primeval and Justified? I mean, 
was it difficult or did or is it or is Elmore Leonard's type of hero so kind of specific that you can absorb Raylan Gibbons into this without a lot of difficulty? Well, we were a little worried about it, to tell you the truth, because it was kind of a crown jewel. I mean, look, it, the, the the book was written whatever, 35 years ago, and we didn't want to do a disservice to the book. Um, you know, it's not a Raylan novel, but it's kind of a literary granddaddy to to this postmodern Western that he created and, and Raylan Gibbons' character. So, you know, our approach was really not to um, be, I'll tell you what the approach was. We were trying to do a mashup. To, we were trying to catapult Raylan into this story and see how it would work and do and, and service the story and some of the characters and let it evolve. But it was really taking Raylan and catapulting him in the story. And, you know, there's another character in the book by the name of Raymond Cruz, who, like I said, is kind of his literary granddaddy. We also want to do service to that character, which we did. Uh, we actually introduced him later in, in in the show, and you know we wanted to to you know treat him well. And so, visually, what were the guiding principles for you in ter- in terms of what did you want to kind of carry over from Justified, and were there directions you wanted to go that were different? I mean, I know some of it's just just by virtue of it being set in Detroit, that's going to give it a different look. But what were your feelings in that regard? Look, I think that we spent seven years doing Justified and it's kind of what I call act one of Raylan's life in this character's life. It's a story about not being able to go home again. This is kind of, uh, you know, the second act, let's, let's call it. And it's, it's a different story. I mean, you know, it's a story that stands on its own. Uh, we have a character who's at a different place in his life. I think that, um, I like to say that the road in front of him is a lot shorter than the road behind uh, he's three or four years away from mandatory retirement. The story takes place, you know, whatever, 10 years you know, later in his life. He has a daughter who is 15 going on 16, who, you know, he has only a few more years with her because uh, he shares custody with his ex-wife and she'll be emancipated in a couple of years. So a- existentially, I think it's an interesting story. And in some ways, the story is, um, it's not so much that in visual terms, that I want to recapture what we did before. It's kind of a more grown-up version of what we did. I think the story's got a little edgier. I think it's a different place in his life. I think that the visual style reflects that. And so really my attempt was to let it grow up a little bit. In in what way? How did how did we say the visual style was more grown up? I think it's a pretty edgy piece, you know, and I think that um you know the the story in itself is really a three-hander between a Raylan and one of the best bad guys that Elmore ever, you know, created in Clement Manziel. And then there's a third character, you know, this uh, defense attorney who's kind of the character in between the two. They're really three characters on a collision course. And um, so I think just in visual terms, um, there's, I think, a sense that, you know, characters being maneuvered together, I think a lot of it takes place at night. You know, Detroit's a character in the piece. It's not the hills of Kentucky. Uh, It's a different piece than Justified was, but I think it has some of the same tones. But I think in visual terms, it just feels like an edgier, more grown-up version of the show that we did. Yeah, I noticed that the uh, DP on the first couple episodes was John Lindley, who I remember from, I used to be a big Joseph Rubin fan, so I was a fan of all those movies like The Stepfather and True Believer and things like that that he shot, and then the Phil Alden Robinson movies he shot, you know, great cinematographer. I can't remember if you've worked with him before or not. How did he come on board and what kinds of conversations did the two of you have? You know, John, I've done a number of things together. I adore working with him. I mean, he's a great director of photography. 
you know, he started out in features and kind of has done, you know, some television work, you know, pilots and a little bit of series work. And I just thought it would be a great, you know, collaboration. So, um, uh, you know, it was John and myself and, and I brought in a second DP because we were rotating DPs, uh, Jeff Greeley, who I knew for years. He was my operator years ago and he was John's operator years ago and has been uh, a director of photography for at least a decade. So really the three of us kind of, uh, you know, started talking about the visual style of the show and, and um, it was just a great collaboration, you know. Do you have any sort of cinematic reference points or influences for something like this? Are you looking at Westerns or crime movies or film noir? Are you thinking of any of that or is it just more responding to what's in the script and what you're looking at in front of you on the day? You know, when we first did Justified, all those influences were there. I mean, it's a postmodern Western. Um, it's also kind of neo-noir. And I grew up in Colorado. The first movies I saw as a kid were Disney movies, and the first adult movies I saw were Westerns. And um, yeah, I, I, I think one of my favorite movies, you know, growing up was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So certainly all those influences are, are there for me. But if you would ask me when two years before we did Justified, did I want to do a postmodern Western? I would have said, are you kidding me? Um, it was a ball doing because I felt like I could walk to the edge of the cliff stylistically, uh, you know, getting near the cliche of a Western and then, and then pull back. Uh, one of my favorite days of shooting, I think was the first or second day of shooting. We were shooting at this farmhouse, um, outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and there was a scene, uh, I don't know if you remember it from the pilot, there was a showdown between Raylan Givens and Dewey Crow. And, uh, Dewey comes into Ava's house and, and Raylan says, you don't come into someone's house without knocking. He said, I want you to go back outside again and knock. He says, oh, I'm going to go back out and then I'm going to come back in. And he goes back out, he opens up the trunk of his car and he pulls out a shotgun. And, and it's like a, you know, it's like a showdown on Main Street in the Western. And I love doing it because it was, like I said, walking to the edge of the cliff and I was looking over the shoulder of, you know, camera was, you know, compositionally was a little low on rail and, you know, kind of John waning him a little bit. And over his shoulder was a satellite dish. And I said, well, there's the, there's the style of the show right there in this postmodern Western. So look, all that stuff existed in the original show. But I think it, this pushes to the next, the next place in terms of uh, modern noir. It's still, look, the original book was called uh, City Primeval or High Noon in Detroit. So Elmore certainly knew was paying, you know, homage to, to, to the Westerns that he, you know, that he grew up with and he was writing. So, um, yeah, all that, all that stuff's there, but to be really honest, I didn't go back in doing this limited series and, and thought about influences or how do we, how do I put quotation marks around that? Or how, how do I, you know, do it in terms of the series that we did? It was its own thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned Clement Menzel and I think, for me, probably the best thing about this new show, or certainly one of them, is uh, Boyd Holbrook's performance. I mean, I thought he was just, as you say, it's a great character is written by Leonard, but then what he brings to it, he's just charming and chilling and, you know, fantastic. And I'm curious, you talk a little bit about casting process and how you landed on him for that character. Well, we thought it was a great character to begin with because, look, we had a great foil for six years and Boyd Crowder. But this is a different character, um, in some ways more dangerous than Boyd. I mean, you know, as you know from the original series, uh, Boyd and Raylan 
as Raylan says, we mine coal together when we were 18. There's a familiarity between the two. And um, Boyd Crowder had an amoral code. But the thing about Manziel is that he's a nihilist. And at a point in Raylan's life, like I said, where he's, he's still good at what he does, but he slowed down a little bit. You know, his hair is a little grayer. You know, it's, it's 10 years down the road, and that road in front of him is shorter. I think that as a antagonist, that the character is, uh, you know, is, is a dangerous character for, for Raylan. He, he, he may not survive. And I think that what, when we cast Boyd Holbrook, I think we can only like either, either have characters named Boyd or cast people named Boyd. You know? <laughs> but um, when we cast Holbrook, um, there's just this, this kind of, there's a sense of humor about him, but you also feel that uh, the, the danger in him. And I, I think that was inherent in the actor. Um, there's an unpredictability about him. Um, and, um, you know, I just think it was a really good piece of casting. And, you know, we started talking about who should be this guy. And I think it was, uh, Tim actually that brought him up. Well, the, the performances all the way across the board on this show are fantastic. And, you know, I know some of it is just casting. I mean, if you cast it right with somebody like Bondi Curtis Hall, you're going to get good stuff, but what kind of environment do you try to create on the set working with the actors to get the best out of them? Well, we've been really fortunate over the years. You know, when you start doing a series, um, sometimes it's hard in the first year of a show to to cast up, you know. This show, somebody once said, uh, one of the actors on the show, and we had great actors over six years, said this was like Hillbilly Shakespeare. <laughs> and it just attracted people, you know. And when we went to cast this, we were just extremely fortunate. Um, it's, you know, you said it. I think it's a really great cast. You know, uh, Tim, uh, Anjadu Ellis, uh, Boyd, Vondi, um, Ren Ireland, Norbert Leo Butts, Victor Williams, a couple of my Steppenwolf pals, uh, Terry Kenny and Kevin Anderson, uh, Adelaide Clemens, David Cross. It was just a really great cast. And so I kind of pinched myself, but the environment on the set is real simple. I want to, you know, you, as a director, you have to figure out what does the actor need? And, um, you know, one of the things you have to give them is you have to make them feel safe. Um, but these are all pretty dynamic actors. And the environment, and I think the environment on the set made them feel safe and, and they just ran with it. And, and look, we had a great time. Well, one of the things too that I really like about the show and that I think you're really good at is you take these scenes that we've seen a million times. Like in the first episode, there's the scene where they go to arrest the guy at his mom's house. I think his name is Barry. And we've seen that scene where the cops show up to, you know, break in, arrest a suspect. I mean, you see that in every episode of NCIS, every episode of Law and Order. But there's something about the way you shoot it with the sort of depth in the frame and staging it down the hallways, coming in opposite directions and then into the stairwell that makes it really fresh. And I'm wondering for you, for those kinds of scenes, again, these things that are sort of staples of cop shows that we've seen a bunch of times, how do you keep it interesting for yourself and the audience and, and sort of avoid, uh, you know, avoid doing what's always done because I feel I again I feel like you're good at keeping it fresh but it also doesn't feel like you're you're not forcing something either you're not doing something unusual just for the sake of doing something unusual well thank you I mean look it starts with the characters I mean even you know when we did justified in doing this even minor characters have a life and and so you want to do due diligence to those characters so 
and I don't know how to describe it other than to say that that I, I try to put the audience in the shoes of the characters, the protagonist and the antagonist, to feel what they're feeling. It sounds like a general thing, but I don't know how to describe it other than I feel like the camera is always with them, no matter who it is. And so, and, and the other thing, you know, for a director, I think that um, there's a certain musicality to directing and that you have to find a rhythm. And so within the scene that it, itself, the way you stage it, the, the, the lenses that you select, um, who's the focus of the scene, at what point in the scene, these are all the things that make a scene interesting to me. And so it's finding a rhythm, you know, doing due diligence for all the characters, understanding what everybody wants at any point, you know, in the scene and telling the story. So that's always the approach to me. And are those choices in terms of lenses and where you're going to put the camera and all that kind of stuff, are those choices that you make ahead of time or are they choices that you make on the set? Do you, do you block the actors on the set and see what you've got and, and adjust the shots according to that? Or do you go in with your shots pre-planned or is it somewhere in between? Well, the answer is really both. I mean, I'm a prepper. So I like to say that when I go into a show that, you know, I've taken three passes as a director, taken three passes at the script. When you write the script, well, then you have, you know, in a way you've already made several passes to begin with, you know? Um, but I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm not a, um, I'm not a good drawer in terms of, uh, I, I don't storyboard my own stuff, but I do architectural plans. And, you know, I kind of see, you know, from the first time you read a script, I think it starts being formed in your brain. What is the scene about? Who's the fulcrum of the scene? How do you begin the scene? What's the middle? What's the end of the scene? I do a lot of work, make a lot of drawings, a lot of overheads. If it's an action sequence or visual effects sequence, I'll bring in a storyboard artist to storyboard just as a communication tool with the other department heads. But I have a, when I go in to shoot, I'm able to tell you before I go in how it's going to cut together. I'm a pretty good editor. And then if you've done all that, you're going to rip it up and throw it out. And you have the safety net to do whatever. You want to see the behavior of the actors. You want to see what the actor is going to bring to it. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, sometimes you kind of circle around and it ends up pretty much how you planned it months before. And sometimes you're, you know, you didn't catch anything. You didn't catch it when you were prepping, you know. You can think a scene is, you know, you may see it one way and how you're going to cover it, how you're going to stage it, the, the kind of lenses, and all of a sudden you throw it up on its feet and you go, well, that's not what the scene's about at all. So you, I think it's important to not be so rigid that you're going to miss something on the day. But that being said, I do think a lot of the work is done for me way ahead of time. Uh, what the composition is, how I'm going to stage it, and even what the lenses are. Well, and how about something like the uh, car chase between Boyd Holbrook and Keith David? I'm assuming something like that has to be pretty planned out. How do you conceptualize and execute a scene like that? And what kinds of conversations are you having with your, I don't know, the stunt drivers and all that kind of thing? Well, to be honest, that's, I think that scene was the first scene I wrote. Uh, even when it was in a different incarnation, because it kind of existed in the book. Um, so I'd been thinking about it for a long time. But, you know, what I'll do is I'll start breaking it down and, you know, what's the best way to shoot it? What, what are the, you know, what are the f physical difficulties of shooting a scene and where you're shooting it? You know, we were shooting in, in, in the summer in the Midwest where the hours are short. So how, how do you accomplish it? Um, what's being done 
my first unit. Uh, sometimes on a car chase, I'll bring in, I have a second unit director who I like a lot, who we work very closely together. And the way I work with him is I'll, I'll storyboard it and hand him the storyboards and say, do better now. Uh, and then he'll tweak them. Um, but some of it was done, you know, second unit, uh, sometimes in conjunction with the first unit will be shooting in one place, second unit in another. Um, sometimes I'll mop up, you know, uh, what the second unit didn't get. So it's really a combination, you know, a lot of it is so mechanical and, um, you know, so it's really, it's planned out. It's planned out for the, you know, the city that you're shooting in and the, you know, time of the year and the amount of hours. And, um, you know, it was a pretty complicated sequence. Uh, we were all over the place and, um, but it's pretty much how it was planned out, you know? And then in, you know, after that car chase, you've got this great long take, or at least it looks like it's all in one unbroken shot where Givens arrives on this crime scene and you kind of follow him around in one shot. Um, where did the idea for that come from? And what are the kind of logistical challenges in staging something like that? Well, I kind of love that scene. Uh, it came out of a conversation with uh, Jared Lindley and myself. You know, like I said, you kind of, as a director, you have to find a rhythm. And, and, and if you've been into sequences before that are coverage heavy, um, that are, you know, no cut lasting longer than, you know, a second, um, that it gives you the, you know, the permission really to do something different in the next scene. So I try to find a rhythm so I just don't get, you know, kind of lulled into, you know, a pace that's the same from scene to scene. So, you know, we were in the middle of, you know, this massive chase sequence, an action sequence. And I, you know, John and I started talking and we said, well, wouldn't it be great that there may be a piece of coverage here and there, but that it's really generated by Raylan entering the scene. His life is about to change because of this event. And it wouldn't be great if we could do it basically as a warner. And so we started figuring out how to do that. So, you know, it started out with a drone that came down and then the operator, you know, who was dressed up like a cop, grabbed the camera off the drone. The drone flew away. We took the the camera. The doors were on magnets so we could pass it through the back seat of the car. So Raylan puts his head in the passenger side of the front seat while the camera's passed to a second operator who's sitting in the in the in, you know, our grip who's sitting in the back seat, who's able to continue the shot, who hands it off to a, another operator who's waiting outside the door. And what you don't see is that the, the doors are kind of snapped back into play. So it looks like we pass through the car magically, you know. Um, and then the camera kind of goes around at a 360 because it, it was great to feel what Raylan was feeling in the midst of this, you know, it was just, a shit show at that point, what had happened in the story. And, um, you know, on a, on a feature, you would have hours and hours to rehearse that, you know, and, and when you're doing television, you don't have hours and hours. So we rehearsed it a number of times, then we shot it. And, and um, I thought it worked pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, you know, you talking about the television schedule, because you've obviously, you've directed features and you've directed a ton of TV. And I'm curious for you as a director, what do you feel like are the advantages and disadvantages of those tight TV schedules. I mean, on the one hand, is there something about it that kind of forces you to operate on instinct more and maybe sometimes yields good stuff? Or do you long for the kind of more luxurious shooting schedules that you get on features? Well, I think it's both. But as you keep doing it, you get older, you know, your patience was whittled down. Uh, look, I'm, t I'm in London right now, and I spent the whole day today 
on a visual effects sequence that everything is visual effects. And we were lucky to get, I don't know, eight setups done in a day uh, on a virtual set. And I've never been so bored in my life. I mean, there is something about, look, all the time I, I you know, I'll, I'll complain. If I had enough time and I had months and, you know, I could do, you know. Um, but there is something about this kind of adrenaline uh, pumping, you know, way of, you know, shooting, of telling a story. And, and you know, there's a difference. I like to say in features, you have the, a little bit more time to work, start on the outside and work your way into the center of this scene. In, in television, you have to get to the center as quickly as possible. You have to make a decision. If it's a lousy decision, then you make another decision. There's something about it that's, you know, I think is kind of good in a way. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I wish I had 120 days to shoot something, but but you don't. And so it makes you go on instinct. It makes you prep well. It makes you really understand the material inside and out. Um, you, you know, it's dangerous at times. You're, you're flying by the seat of your pants. What you don't want to do is repeat yourself a lot. But if you are repeating yourself, you want to improve on the last time you did something. Well, I've done a scene like this and here's how I did it. But you know what? This time I can tweak it and make it more interesting or I can do this shot better. Um, so it's all part of the thing. So look, you know, um, there's an advantage to, you know, on being on a long schedule, but sometimes a short schedule makes you a better director. Well, and as a co-showrunner and producing director, how do you work with the other directors, the guest directors who come on the show? Because I would think that that's a tricky thing, too, in the sense that you want to take advantage of whatever their ideas are, obviously, and you want people to bring their own sensibilities to something, but you also have to kind of maintain a consistency of what you've established. So how do you work with it, with them, with the guest directors? I'll tell you, it's really difficult. I mean, this is a short order of, you know, it's eight episodes. It's a, it's a little novel that we're doing, you know, and, and it, my original intention was that I was going to direct all of them. Um, for a number of reasons, I, 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 I couldn't. And probably it's, you can't now, well, maybe we're out of COVID now, but certainly we were still in, in COVID time a year ago. And um, I've been really careful for several years, then got sick in the middle of shooting. So if it had just been me directing, we would have shut down. But, um, you know, there were several directors on this. Um, in an ideal world, what you'd want to do is have a little retreat, you know, <laughs> I mean, gather everybody together, go to Hawaii for a week and talk. Um, but when do you have that opportunity? So, um, you know, I think that you're trying to keep consistency and it also you don't want to step on the toes of the other directors. Um, this one, there was, even though there was a show for six years, it wasn't, everything was cross border on, on this. So it wasn't like they could see the pilot of the limited to understand what we were doing. You know, the, certainly the DPs did. And, you know, uh, we would have conversations and, and certainly one of the other directors is a good friend of mine, John Avnet. And um, so it's kind of a left brain, right brain kind of thing. But, you know, in an ideal world, you want to talk about, you want to talk about tonally, you want to talk about how to, you know, what the scenes are about. You know, if you're lucky, everybody gets it. Um, uh, you know, I think if I were doing this again, it would have been really awesome for it to be myself and one other director, to tell you the truth. There's only eight episodes. It's a different story when there's 12 episodes, 13 episodes, 21 episodes on a network show. It's hard to keep consistency. It's, you know, it's hard to have, you know, 
if I'm on the set, I want to be directing. I don't want to be there telling someone else how to do their job. Um, you know, you want directors to be free and bring something to the process. So it's this tricky kind of, you know, line that you have to walk. The last thing I want to ask you about is the music on the show, because I, I love both the score and the needle drops that you use. And it's funny because, you know, I've been a fan of yours as a director going back to heaven help us, but somehow I never really, until I was preparing for this, I never researched you to the extent that I realized you had this whole career in music before you made films. Um, and it was kind of fascinating to, to read about that. So, and it, but it explained why you're so good at using music as a filmmaker and talk a little bit about um, your approach to music and the role of music in justified city primeval and, well, now you know my deep, dark past. I'm, 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 look, I'm flattered. Um, I love that aspect. I was 18 years old and had to be a professional musician. It taught me a lot, you know, and um, and I usually have a, you know, there are two, you know, two things I wanted to do when I was growing up. One was to be Keith Richards and the other was to, to be a director, you know, and, um, you know, music is... Um, an important part of the process. I think directing takes the same side of your brain as, uh, you know, as being a musician does. Um, I've had really close relationships with composers I've worked with. And, um, you know, the music on the original show was fantastic. I thought um, Steve Picaro did a really great job. It was kind of, you know, a root, the American Roots music, you know, about a guy going home to Kentucky. Well, this is a show that takes place in Detroit. And so, you know, and I wanted to do something a little bit different. So, um, you know, one of the composers I've worked with, and I tend to work with guys over and over again, but one composer I've worked with is Mark Isham. And I thought one cool thing that Mark does is he, um, this show's a mashup to me, um, you know, stylistically. Uh, scripts are a mashup, Justified and City Primeval. And I thought musically it should be a mashup. You know, Detroit's a character. Um, you know, Mark tends to do a lot of work that is a mashup, you know, and I find it interesting. So we had long conversations about what we wanted to do musically. I wanted to reestablish some of Raylan's colors, which are these, you know, kind of American roots colors, but let it grow up a little bit, um, let it be a little more dangerous. Um, two of the characters in the piece are kind of involved in music. I mean, Clement Manziel is a wannabe musician. He stinks. But he's a wannabe musician, and his interest in music is what links him to Sweetie, who's a minor character in the book and becomes a major character here. So we started talking about Manzel as a character, and my first instinct was uh, this wannabe musician that uh, he was a big fan of Roy Orbison, which someone pointed out to me, well, you know, haven't we kind of seen that before at Blue Velvet, and, you know, um, and it's all really not his generation, by the way. So I said, well, you know, what if he wanted to be, what if he's a wannabe Jack White, who I really love a lot and I think of when I think of Detroit. And so that became part of his character. And then with Sweetie, um, I just find him a real, I think Vondi's fantastic in this. We worked together years, years ago. To work with him again was fantastic. And we wanted to create a character who was of this world and kind of represented Detroit. Um, the description we had for him was that he was a guy who was a monster bass player that he could have gone to, to Los Angeles. He could have gone to New York. He could have gone to Nashville, but he didn't leave this place. He got into some bad shit, got into some trouble, ended up buying a bar, never got out of Detroit. 
but he's of this place. So to me, he was a monster bass player. And I, I said to Mark, I said, you know, he's kind of like the four of my favorite bass players. One was uh, James Jamerson, who did all the uh, Motown sessions. Uh, I, th- I thought of Stanley Clark. I thought of um, uh, Tony Levin. And I thought of Herbie Flowers. Those are four bass players that I personally love a lot. I'm a guitar player, not a bass player, but I always love them. And we felt that bass somehow, they kind of play what I call lead bass, and that should be part of the score somehow. That somehow this kind of nasty Jack White guitar should be part of the score somehow. That some of, you know, Raylan's color was kind of, um, there was a lot of mandolin stuff and a little bit of banjo stuff and guitar stuff in original Justified, but what if the what if we're banjo and a little bit edgier and kind of, I don't know, I like the banjo stuff that, you know, Mark Mumford does, you know, that they, that Mumford and Sons did and, and uh, that Fleck does. And, you know, so we talked about that and how do you do this mashup with those kinds of music? And then plus what Mark, you know, Mark's one of the great trumpet players, you know, in the world um, and, and to use orchestral elements. So how do you do this mashup and, and make that work? I love the music in this. I think that it's um, very unusual. I think, I think Mark did a fantastic job and I just love working with him. And when I walk away from a project, um, it's one of the things that I usually smile about if we hit it musically. And I think he did. Um, uh, you know, and, and we also had, you know, I think great source music in this. Um, you know, Sweetie has a bar where, as he says, in the story said, you know, I only want to serve the people I want to serve and play the music I want to play. And, um, so some of the, some really obscure R and B and funk stuff that we found that, you know, our music supervisor found, um, uh, you know, and I don't know when I was writing it, for some reason I had Dwight Yoakam in my head because he's from Kentucky and, um, he was able to work Dwight in a little bit in the piece. So it's, it's kind of like a, a, Big combo platter, and and I'm I'm thrilled that that's something you responded to because I love the music in it. Yeah, I absolutely thought the music was just fantastic, and one of the things that really elevated the show and separated it from everything else I've been watching lately. And uh, so I guess this maybe is a maybe is a little premature since this hasn't even aired yet. But I, you know, my last question is, what's next for Justified? Do you think there's more left in this? I mean, as a fan, this only it didn't really uh, completely satiate me. It kind of got me excited again and made me want more. Well, I I hope it does do. Look, could it end after this eight up? Yeah, it could. But I do think, and we weren't trying to do that, that I think that there is, uh, there is a new beginning that's set up in it. And I I think that there's a third and final act um, of this guy's story. And, um, you know, ultimately, it, you know, we'll see if the audience responds to this and, you know, FX will have a decision to make, which is, do you want to do the third act? Uh, you know, I know Tim would love to do it. Dave Andron, who's my partner on this, would love to do it. I'd love to do it to be able to bring back some characters that we love and create some new characters and and really to see uh, see where Raylan ends up. You know, I, I think that um, that would that would make me really happy. So, look see what happens well thanks so much for talking with me michael it's a great show well, thank I, you i really enjoyed talking with you about it thanks so much man 